I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I am the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I'm joined in with one of my best buddies, Stefan. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, bro. Awesome. So maybe um, we can just let our listeners know this is the second uh, the second podcast we've done together. The first one was on the, the brown seaweed. If you haven't listened to that episode, make sure you do the Eclonia Carver. But today, we're going to be talking about another novel ingredient, um, <laughs> so and that, that's going to be dihydroberberine. But before we get into that, maybe Steph, do you want to just let my listeners know a little bit about yourself and um, introduce yourself to my audience? Sure, bro. So first off, I suppose me and Lucas met like four years ago in naturopathic school. I think I had blue blockers on in class and the other guys on his table were like, hey, I think you should be friends with that guy. And here we are right now. So I suppose my journey into health and wellness started when I was like 19 or so, got quite unwell, went through the conventional medical system, no answers, then went elsewhere, went to sort of alternative therapies like naturopathy, Chinese medicine, et cetera, and started to see like results and started to actually have my health improve, which is fantastic. And then somewhere along the way, I decided, hey, like this is actually what I want to be doing with my life. I want to be helping people, working with people, obviously delivering, you know, like beautiful herbs and supplements to the world as well. And then, yeah, the rest is sort of history, I suppose. Here we are. Yeah. 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 Now we've definitely shared some very funny moments together, particularly, particularly in class. Like uh, <laughs> we didn't hold back in class. Some of the things we said were just like completely no filter. <laughs> so today, obviously, we're going to be discussing dihydroberberine, which we're really excited to be exploring some of the research. And I guess maybe, Steph, do you want to sort of explain to my listeners, you know, why we're focusing on this ingredient and um, in the context of a potential new up-and-coming company 
Yeah. So me, Lucas, and our other business partner, Jordan, we're starting a company called Novel Nutrients, and we're bringing dihydroberberine to the Australian market and worldwide as well. But that's our first sort of foray into this. Yeah. It was just one of those funny things where we're talking about like, what can we, you know, what can we bring to the market and how can we do it? And then the thought was, well, why not just do it ourselves? Why not actually, you know, manufacture it, do it like that, et cetera. And it just sort of unfolded really, I suppose, organically and with a lot of ease as well. And here we are today. It was just, yeah, just so many little synchronicities, I suppose, from my end that just really cemented that, okay, this is how we're going to be doing it. We're going to be bringing dihydroberberine here. And yeah, here we are now. And what about the name Novel? Where- <laughs> okay, yeah. So Lucas just had this... <sighs> When we were in naturopathic school, he'd always be like, yeah, I'm looking for that, that next novel ingredient, that next, you know, that next novel compound. Or he'd be like, if he had like a, you know, an ailment he was working through, he'd be like, oh, what should I do for X, Y, Z? I'm like, dude, just, just take ginger, for instance, you know? And he's like, yeah, but it's just not novel enough. <laughs> and then we're thinking of names for it. Like we had all these, you know, these out there names. And then one morning I'm just like, hang on, why don't we just call it novel? You know, and then just, I just, I laugh every time I think of the name, Novel Nutrients, because it's just like, it's, it's you, bro. It's like, it's everything about you. It perfectly encapsulates the way I think, because like all the way through naturopathy school and even before that, I was always like, I don't know, man. It's like, I've always just been interested in like bringing something new to the table. Yeah. Mainstream, basic, you know what? Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Just wanting to be, yeah, cutting edge, I guess. And like, I mean, that's not only the reason, like, one of the drivers, like, stand out Mm. in a crowd, but, like, just in general, like, it's fulfilling to bring something new to the table because then you're, like, you're pioneering stuff and that's what we're hoping to do with Novel Nutrients. Mm. And so this is going to be the first of hopefully many ingredients together that we bring to market. So the hydroberberine, we can start this discussion off by, like, looking at, First of all, yeah, regular berberine. So, like, obviously, you know, both you and I know some of the uses for it, but maybe explain to my listeners, first of all, the history behind berberine. Yeah. Yeah, So, firstly, berberine is an alkaloid. It's like a bioactive compound found in certain plants. Like, in the naturopathic world, we would say golden seal. It's one of the big ones. And barberry and um, berberus vulgaris and things like that are all plants that contain even Oregon grapefruit. It's sort of one of those really multifaceted compounds anything from sort of gut health to metabolic health, which is more of what the dihydro is about, the, the metabolic side of things. We'll get that. So it's got a, a yellow pigment, been used extensively in Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine over the years. That's the um, traditional Indian medicine. A lot of published studies on berberine. So mm-hmm. I think we found last year, 630 papers were published last year on berberine alone. So crazy like that is just yeah, so widely studied still, despite all these existing studies, there's still more and more that are coming out regularly. Yeah. With berberine, since it's got so many positive papers on it, what researchers do and scientists and things like that, they look at the metabolites. Is it berberine that's eliciting these effects? Like these herbs that we talked about, like golden seal, what are the other ones? Like you mentioned Oregon, grape. Like it's interesting and I love like exploring this is like, what is the active constituent in these herbs? Is it berberine or is it the metabolite of berberine, which is what we're going to be talking about, this dihydroberberine? And we'll also, we'll just say DHB for short because our listeners are going to be like, what? 
Um, in the group chat, so it's it makes sense. <laughs> and we're not referring to for those bodybuilders listening in. We're not referring to dihydrobaldenone. We're not we're not talking about steroids here. Yeah, that existed, bro. <laughs> um, but that's like I mean I find that pretty interesting. Like, is it the active constituent of these herbs, like berberine, or is it like what's eliciting the yes, metabolic yes. enhancements? And so like you know, six hundred and thirty papers published on just berberine, and I think we'll see tons more on DHB coming up. So let's dive into going back to just regular berberine. We'll go through some of like the major actions in the body. This is always like when I was studying, this was always like my favorite part was like dissecting the effects of, you know, different herbs and how they can affect different parts of the body. So let's dive into that. Yeah, for sure. I suppose, like we said, on the like the metabolic side, you know, that's where berberine can really shine and dihydro as well. So I suppose when we're talking about metabolism as well, we're talking about like how our body handles fats and handles sugars and how it turns that into energy. That's like the real basic level of, you know, the metabolic function. So the really fantastic thing about berberine is it helps us to be more sensitive to sugars by improving our insulin sensitivity. So we can, I suppose, dive more into that in a bit. We'll just sort of have a broader overview for now helps us with improving our cholesterol balance, reducing like um, plaque buildup in the arteries. Then we've got the whole like microbial effects as well. So berberine is a very potent like antimicrobial. It kills stuff in the body. It doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that's a bad thing, of course, but it um, can like kill certain oh, there's my head, pathogenic organisms, et cetera, et cetera, promote um, proliferation of good bacteria, et cetera, et cetera. Really good anti-inflammatory. Anything else you want to add, bro? Yeah, well, I guess like that microbial effects, like effect, you know, acting as an antibiotic in a mm. sense. Like, yeah, people may see that as like, yeah, we're going to introduce berberine, we're going to kill off bad bacteria, which it does a great job at. Yeah. Um, but obviously, that's like that can be a drawback, right? So, because not, not everyone wants to be doing that. Not everyone is even in a state to be killing stuff off in their body if their elimination pathways aren't properly open, or if they're just way too toxic, I suppose like starting to kill things prematurely can lead to a worse outcome and may not be the best thing. Like even if, you know, there's that whole terrain versus, you know, germ theory. And if you're just focusing on the germ and it's like, you know, I come from the Lyme community as well. And I see people like, oh, I've got a Lyme diagnosis and just attack the Lyme and they never get better. So they haven't addressed the terrain first. So if we're looking at this, we're like, oh, we're just, you know, metabolically we're unwell, but we're taking high doses of berberine to correct that. Then we start killing things off. Then we start getting GI distress that can be problematic. And we're not saying berberine's bad at all. We're just saying that there's a time and a place where you want to be killing stuff off, where you want that antimicrobial action, and it's not for everyone at every time. And that's, again, where the, the dihydro can come in. That's exactly right. That's like the biggest appeal factor for, well, one of the, one of the main appealing factors of DHB is the, the fact that like individuals can get a lot of the benefits of berberine without a lot of the side effects. And one of those side effects is like, you know, the major GI discomfort yeah. and things like that. So going back to berberine, I mean, so we've seen, so it can help with intestinal permeability. So potentially helping with leaky gut, having anti-nociceptive effects in the gut, increasing the production of butyrate. We can sort of talk about butyrate now. I mean, like that's a quite a well-known short chain fatty acid that has some broad spectrum benefits across the body companies are releasing different versions of like butyrate. You've probably seen the tributrin, things like that. Butyrate producing bacteria as well. Yeah. 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 So the fact that berberine can increase the production of this 
it's just like another downstream effect that it can have. Mm. Interestingly, the promotion of Akamanzia. Oh, yeah. This guy loves his Akamanzia. Yeah. That's like one of our commensal strains. Like, you know, up until recently, it's not been able to be supplemented with to improve it. And so things like berberine were you know, quite helpful to, to actually boost up levels of that commensal bacteria that we have. And then berberine has like sort of anti-inflammatory effects, inhibits thrombin induced platelet aggregation, and then obviously helping with that endothelial function. Another effect that I forgot to put into our slides, man, is actually, oh, there was like a rat study where they were looking at PDE5 inhibitors. Really? Yeah, and they are looking at compounds that can down-regulate PDE5 expression in rats. Mm. And for those listening in, the PDE5 enzyme is the way in which Viagra works to facilitate erections. It actually inhibits that enzyme. And if you search like berberine PDE5, you'll see that it can downregulate the expression of PDE5 in rats. Whether or not it occurs in humans is another story, but... Well, yeah. it's extensive self-experimentation, bro. <laughs> <laughs> no topical use for berberine, everyone, because you don't want a yellow, you know what. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you do. At least some people do. <laughs> what else have we got? So... Yeah, looking at the obesity front, let's look at that, like how berberine can assist with that. Yeah, so again, like it's a multifaceted thing. So we know obesity can be contributed by many things. Obviously, you know, overeating is one of them, but I think we know by now in the health realm that calories in, calories out is just one small portion of like what's going on. And when we talk about things like inflammation and hormonal regulation, that can influence the calories out. So I suppose in some way it still does come back to that calories in, calories out idea. But to say it's like, oh, I just expend energy throughout the day and that's what's going on here it's like it's way more nuanced than that and even like if you are chronically inflamed or if you have you know hormonal dysregulation excessive cortisol etc etc you're more likely to store things as fat you know the body's like in survival mode and you know fat gets us further than muscle does in certain situations at least historically so um yeah the beautiful thing about berberine like we said before is that it improves insulin sensitivity so it's going to enable us to handle sugars much better and why is that important? Well, we know high blood sugar contribute to many issues, things like, uh, like I said, inflammation, making us altering our hormones as well, especially if women, we know polycystic ovarian syndrome can be contributed to by insulin resistance, even like endothelial dysfunction. So issues with our blood vessels, we have chronically high blood sugar for too long that can damage our blood vessels. So just it pretty much all these metabolic diseases at their root can have insulin resistance as a contributing factor. You know, there's many things like inflammation that can contribute as well, but inflammation itself can lead to insulin resistance. Yeah. Also, in addition there, I guess we can look at some of the um, some of the mechanisms in like obesity and diabetes. So berberine does help with increasing glucose-dependent insulin release. So a lot of anti-diabetic drugs work in the same fashion there. I and mean, we'll get into some of the comparative studies towards the end with like berberine and metformin, but berberine increases brown adipose tissue. And this is like one of the reasons why cold therapy is so popular at the moment to help with that brown fat production. But berberine is also known to stimulate the production of brown adipose tissue. It also helps with decreasing gluconeogenesis. So maybe do you want to explain what that is, Steph? Yeah. So just production, like I suppose if we break down the word gluconeogenesis, so neonugenesis creation, glucose sugar. So it's where we create new sugar essentially. 
So that would be where, you know, our liver, you know, might break down muscle tissue, I should say, and then turning that into sugars. We might be, oh, forgetting the biochemistry here. Do you want to back me up here, bro? Yeah, I guess it's sort of like related to the production of glucose in the liver from non-carbohydrate sources. Oh, okay. There's like amino acids, yeah, things, other, yeah. other components, which totally makes sense. And in addition to that, like we can see that berberines, there's some studies on berberine assisting with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease mm. by decreasing liver fat accumulation, reducing hepatic steatosis, osteosis. Yeah, regulating that microbiome as well. It's a really big topic is like, we mentioned acomansia, we mentioned um, like helping with clostridium and things like that, but and butyrate. But it'd be interesting to see like which of these bacteria are associated with fat loss. You know what I mean? Like I find that like diving into that side of things like really fascinating because we know about acomansia, we know about butyrate, but what else? Like I'm sure there's there's some other, you know, really prominent bacterial species that are like very directly associated with metabolic health there. Sure, for sure. And look, we're just looking at what we can actually measure at this stage as well, which I'm sure there's so many things we can't measure with regard to the gut and also just in general as well. Like what we can extrapolate from food is based on our current methods of looking into things. And if we were to expand the way we were able to look into things, we might find, oh my God, we, we thought it was this, but it was all these other things that we just didn't even see beforehand. Yeah, and that's where I'm really excited to see more research on myself, like detection methods and, I mean, health tech I think is going to be interesting in the next like five to ten years in terms of like what we know about the microbiome, what like specific strains to help very specific things in the body because like the more we understand about the microbiome, the better we can then apply the knowledge for very specific issues, you know. There's more individualized care as well. Exactly. So then I guess let's segue into one of the main uses for berberine, which is insulin resistance. Yeah. So I suppose from that, we should give a little breakdown of like, I suppose the talk of how we ingest sugar, how we take in carbohydrates and how we turn that into energy at a real basic level. So I suppose firstly, like again, very basically keeping it really simple here, we eat sources of sugar, you know, carbohydrates, whatever. Our body breaks them down. They pass through the intestine into the bloodstream. Once they're in the bloodstream, our pancreas detects this and will secrete insulin. Okay. Now we might think, oh, insulin, it's a bad thing. No way. It's, it's not a bad thing at all. When in excess, it's a bad thing. When blood sugar in excess is in excess, it's a bad, bad thing. But the reason we secrete insulin is insulin binds to cell receptors. And that tells the cells, hey, accept this sugar into the body, accept this sugar into the cell, I should say. So what that does is we've got this sugar in the bloodstream. The cells are now open and receptive to the sugar. The sugar crosses from the bloodstream into the cell. So we've lowered the blood glucose and we've increased the cellular glucose. So that's how we can keep blood sugar lower by putting sugar into our cells. From there, it undergoes like a lot of metabolic processes to turn that sugar into ATP, which is our energy, you know, relying on many sort of nutrients and cofactors and, and pathways, especially like vitamin B1, which you and I both are quite a big fan of. But that's sort of like at its basis, how it works. We eat the sugar, get into our intestine, like through our intestines into our bloodstream, put our insulin through the pancreas, get into the cell, turn it into energy. Mm. Now, that's like when everything's working fantastically. There's obviously the case with a lot of people as well. And I can't remember the stats on this, but 
around the time of like 2020, 2021, there was a lot of talk around metabolic health as a, you know, a predicating factor for people getting sick with the thing that I don't know if we can even still say, I'm not sure what the algorithm's like anymore with that, but I will call it the thing. I think everyone knows what we're talking about. And there were these crazy stats in the U S at least that, you know, X percent of the population, it might've been like what, 60, 70, something crazy like that, even more that were metabolically unhealthy. They weren't able to process fats and sugars and turn them into energy adequately. And that can lead to this, you know, horrible downstream effect of, you know, all these other metabolic diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, and the list goes on and on and on. Mm. So like, why is that the case? Like, how can we become insulin resistant? Like what's going on there? I suppose there's a few ways to look at this and there's a few contributing factors. And then from each contributing factor, you can break that down into many other contributing factors as well. Like the mind maps we have to do, you have to do it at school. Oh my God, God, that'd take ages. So one of the first things is the pancreatic beta cells. So we mentioned the pancreas, that organ that's, you know, just around here. Oh, you guys can't see me, of course, maybe, I don't know, around there. That secretes insulin. It also creates enzymes. We're not really too concerned with that at the moment. So it creates enzymes, specifically the pancreatic beta cells. Now, if we have damaged these pancreatic beta cells or they're just like overworked or they're chronically inflamed or there's a lot of oxidation, like damage to them, we can actually reduce how much insulin we can pump out, okay? And then what happens? We don't have enough insulin to tell the cells, hey, you need to open to receive this sugar. So the sugar stays in the bloodstream and that leads to elevated blood sugar. And then the other side is we're not getting sugar into the cells. We're not turning that into energy, not turning that sugar into energy, which we need that energy, not just to feel good, but all the processes we don't think about, you know, all the processes in our body that, we don't have to regulate ourselves that just do their own thing. They are all dependent on energy, on ATP production. Hmm. So that's one aspect there, the pancreatic effect. Then the other one is we might have a healthy functioning pancreas. We might be pushing out insulin in a healthy manner, but then the cells, they don't respond to insulin in the same way. So that's what we call like coin the term insulin resistance. So the insulin might bind to the cell receptor and the cell is like just not, not firing. It's not getting the message that is open to receive sugar or it could even just be so saturated with sugar that it's like, yeah, I hear you, but I can't take on any more because they may not be actually turning that sugar into energy. And that one can be contributed to by many things. You know, we can have high cortisol, like high stress hormones as a, a factor for insulin resistance. We can have inflammation as a source. We can have obviously just oxidative damage. You know, we can have certain heavy metals which can contribute to this. There's so many, so many factors that can contribute to insulin resistance. And yeah, I suppose that's the sort of crux, like how we can become insulin resistant. And that's sort of people start to look into certain compounds like berberine and other things as well that um yeah. protect us from this. Yeah, really well summarized. I guess also to add to that, it's perfectly normal. For everyone listening in, it's perfectly normal after a meal that contains carbohydrates to see your blood sugar rise. But the issue is in poor health is that your blood sugar rises but stays high for hours, hours on end. And that's the real issue. It's the area under the curve. How long is your blood sugar staying high? And then if we look at interventions in which we can implement to actually reduce that spike and actually make it not spike for as long or perhaps maybe level it out, berberine is one of them, but dihydroberberine is more potent at lowering that post-meal glucose alongside we can implement. I mean, both you and I know the post-meal walks are also incredibly powerful for that. 
so yeah, I just wanted to add that in for my listeners as well. I suppose on the sort of same sort of front, like we've got yeah, no brain that can help with that, but um, I suppose we can also talk about some quick interventions like that can help alongside bird brain. So you mentioned that, that post meal walk. I mean, that's just like, it's free medicine right there. And it's like, how can something so simple be so effective? It's because we were designed to work that way. We are designed to be moving frequently and we don't move so much now. So it's like any movement seems like it's, it's a huge like benefit to the body, you know, and really we're supposed to be, I'm surprised you're not actually in your treadmill desk this morning, dude. Yeah, man. I mean, I was trying to, but my glucose was too low. I didn't want to lower it. <laughs> So we've got the post meal walk that we're both like a fan of, of course. And we've got like our, you know, our GDAs, which, yeah, you know, like, you know, I remember you, I, I sort of knew what they were, I didn't know the term. You kept saying GDA, GDA. I'm like, what, is he talk- what are you talking about? With a, what is a GDA, bro? Yeah, a, glu- a glucose disposal agent. It's like a term used to describe a, uh, compounds that can assist with this process that we're talking about, either making the body more sensitive to insulin, better tolerating glucose, and assisting with glucose uptake in skeletal muscle cells and the liver. We should also break that down because when we eat sugar, when we have a, let's say a bowl of rice, the preference obviously is to shuttle it into the muscles, but then also the liver does store a quarter of the total glycogen. I think it's like about 150 grams. Then yeah. the body. Yeah. The little muscles are around 400 or 500 grams of glucose. But yeah, I think that's important to note, like the fact that we're seeing that occur post-meal. So that's really important to note. So the post-meal walk is one intervention. Dihydroberberine pre-meal, yeah. potentially. I suppose like we can get really you know specific around, okay, best take it half an hour before a meal. That's the ideal time. But then it's like, we don't want to have to say like, you know, what do they say? Don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. It's yeah. like- Having it at any time of the day is going to be fine. There are certainly better and worse times to take it. Like having that walk, it's like, I think the studies show that right after a meal is the best time to take it. But if you can't have a walk after your meal, just walk throughout the day. It's going to be having a benefit. Same with dihydroberberine and regular berberine too. It's going to be improving your insulin sensitivity. You know, again, best time is before, like half an hour or so before your most carbohydrate-rich meal or even just like, you know, twice a day breakfast and dinner. But um, those are some like really potent interventions. Then we've got other things like even just a simple apple cider vinegar, you know, that's going to help us reduce uptake of glucose from our meals. Hashtag glucose goddess. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've done the glucometer, haven't you? Yeah, the CGM device. I never actually ran the ACV experiment on my CGM as a, as a GDA. <laughs> ACV plus CGM and then as a GDA. Yeah, yeah. I was just talking, um, oh, what is it, whatever you call it. Yeah, no, I never really did that. But um, yeah, like I did learn a lot using a CGM. And if those that are listening in, if they want to like, I would highly encourage them to like, just give it a trial. Like, you know, it's two weeks. It's about $100. But like that information is gold. Like you learn so much about your body. Well, when you think about like just a regular, you know, like a, a glucose you know, you take some blood from your finger, you're doing your glucose strip, you're getting one point in time, which is helpful information. Whereas if you're doing like the glucometer, you're getting that whole sort of like change in blood sugar throughout the day. You're seeing it in real time, what's going on with it. And then you can see like, if you get that one point in time, I don't know if you remember, we did this experiment at school once. We did like a regular glucose, we had lunch and then half an hour later we measured it. And 
with the crick, you mean? Was yeah, it? yeah. Do you remember us doing that in um like pathophys or something like that with um with Thomas with Anne Digby? I think we had that oh, one. Really? Yeah, and. I remember you being like, I want to get the best blood sugar. <laughs> I remember this. I remember this now. It was just, I think yeah, Jacinta was in our class. Yeah, I think so. And then like that was interesting, but like we don't know like what the effect was. We don't know like if someone's saying a really like slow digesting thing. Yeah, they don't have even had the blood sugar spike by then. Because well, what about yeah. what about my hiatus hernia as well? Remember that? Like that would have to be a factor, surely. Oh, it's going to slow motility. You know that that's all these things, and that's why like, a glucometer can be so impactful because you don't just see like one random point in time. You know, you see like the whole the whole curve, and then we can look under the curve. And like we we're saying, we can look at interventions that not to say like don't have a higher blood sugar. It's going to happen. You know, but like. How can we either minimize the spikes and keep it more smooth? And how can we like reduce that total time in that spike as well? What are the benefits of keeping that spike smoothened out? Like actually blunting that spike. Explain that. Why is that even better? I suppose so many, so many reasons we can look at. But like one real key one is if we have a huge glucose spike, the pancreas is going to say, I need to push out a ton of insulin. And that's that's a healthy response, right? But then push out a ton of insulin, you can then <laughs> make the blood sugar going too low. And then when blood sugar goes too low, then you go into an adrenal cortisol response and you, your body is actually under stress because if your blood sugar does dip too low without adequate ketone production, you can die. So yeah. then the body's like, oh, we have to secrete cortisol, adrenaline, et cetera. And part of the role of those hormones and catecholamines is to actually push up like gluconeogenesis and also push out like extra sugar from the liver. So then we can actually raise sugar again. So you're on a roller coaster if you're on that. And that's why people feel like, They've got to eat every two hours. Again, when you're metabolically unhealthy, that is likely to happen. You're having to eat all the time to like you go up and then you dip and you go up and you dip and it keeps occurring like that. Yeah. The other thing is like just pointing from Ben Greenfield here, this is uh, probably a few years ago now, but he was saying that he perceives that like the fluctuations in blood sugar is more important than the level of blood sugar itself. Yeah. So if you have like a, let's say, you know, you're for, you know, blood sugar, I'm a five blood sugar, but yours fluctuates wildly. He would say that even though mine's higher, because it's more like stable, that's better for longevity, better for overall health. So he says it's a it's a really key longevity marker to have a nice stable blood sugar. Yeah. Even the sequence in which people eat their food, like mm. let's say you got a pretty balanced meal, like protein, fats, carbs, like opt for either the fiber or protein first, because that's going to delay that glucose gastric emptying rate. But then protein by itself, and I saw this on my CGM at times when I just had pure like protein, even sometimes just like a whey protein shake, it dipped my blood sugar. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's because of the, well, what I suspect it'd be the insulinogenic amino acids that like they're releasing insulin, yeah. it's, it's insulin release, but then it's yeah dropping the sugars. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Everyone's so different. That's like part of this beauty of this, you know, these experiments as well, that we can look at all these studies, you know, like with everything really, but it's very rare that you find a study where hundred percent of the participants like respond in the same way. So what does that tell us? There is bioindividuality and that's what can come here. Like our ancestry can determine what foods we're better adapted to and microbiome as well can say, you know, someone might respond really unfavorably to a tomato where someone might be like, you know, like us Mediterranean background and, and tomatoes are fine. They work well for us. You know, it's just so much individuality. And I think, I feel like we should develop a nice perception of our body over time. But as we're doing that, these interventions like the glucometer can be really helpful in like getting to know the body. You know, I've got an aura ring off now, you know, like 
I know I wake up, I'm like, yeah, I feel good or I don't feel good. If I slept good or I didn't, there's just another a layer to that. I'm like, okay, like I can get some more information as I'm deepening my perception of my body. This can tell me what's going on with me. He's married to biohacking. Just so <laughs> I think I put that as my um my Instagram post when I got the aura ring or something like that. Really? Message to biohacking or something. <laughs> I missed your engagement party. I don't know. But- <laughs> <laughs> the funny the day I got it was actually my cousin's engagement. Uh, the, the engagement party was in an ice bath. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so, let's let's then i guess like go back to like dihydroberberine versus berberine we've got like a really great breakdown that looks at the key differences there so like let's start out with like the absorption yeah can we backtrack just one second yeah, yeah, yeah. so you like a quick summary of like how berberine can actually help with insulin resistance yeah so the first like like we said the pancreas such an important thing for um insulin resistance there's been a study that shows that berberine actually improves pancreatic beta cell function. So it improves the cells that produce our insulin. So it's got that pancreatic restorative effect, reduces inflammation and oxidation. Like we said before, they can contribute to insulin resistance, improves fat metabolism, improves carbohydrate metabolism, can actually improve ketogenesis as well. Like those are some of the main mechanisms we look at. And like we said as well, improving gut bacteria, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Those are some of the mechanisms with which Berberine can help in some resistance. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. All right, cool. So maybe let's dive into DHB being one of the 17 metabolites of berberine. But the researchers identified that DHB is potentially, well, not potentially. I mean, there's research on DHB versus berberine in terms of its glucose lowering capacity and its bioavailability. Yeah, and that's a big one here. And we should notice as like note as well, like you know, calling it one of the 17 metabolites, that means we take in berberine and our body will naturally produce dihydroberberine as well as those 16 other metabolites. So it's, we're not putting something into our body that our body has no idea where it came from or how it got there. It's like we are, if we've had berberine, we've experienced dihydroberberine to some degree. But like we said, there is that bioavailability issue with berberine. And I suppose some studies like say as much as like, five times more bioavailable to have dihydroberberine versus actual berberine. And especially in people with compromised gut function, because it's our microbes, our gut bacteria that actually turn the berberine into that dihydroberberine. So it's kind of that sort of catch 22 where the people who, who need um, the dihydroberberine from the berberine the most are some who are least likely to be able to actually manufacture it within their own body from that ingredient berberine. So that's so funny. Some things in health where it's like, you know, like even like heavy metal toxicity, you know, you're heavy metal toxic and it compromises your ATP production. Whereas we need ATP to remove the heavy metals, then it becomes this vicious cycle. And this is sort of one of those ones as well, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. And then also as part of that, if we compare it again, like back to back, let's do a back to back DHB versus berberine. We'll just go through the top four that we mentioned. Number one was absorption potential. Mm-hmm. So DHB much more potent than berberine in terms of bioavailability and absorption. The second one was GI side effects. So like minimizing the discomfort that so many people experience with regular berberine, we're not seeing these negative effects with DHB. And there's a few reasons for that, right? I mean, firstly, it's, I wouldn't even say with berberine, it's not really a side effect. It's an effect. Berberine is going to be altering the microbial balance within the gut. So it's like, that's good for what it's there for. You know, it can lead to some discomfort though, which is not desirable, but 
the reason dihydroberberine doesn't do it as much is a much lower dose, more targeting. We're saying like, this is for metabolic health, dihydroberberine. Like that's the main use of it. So we're not having to worry about like higher doses to alter the microbial balance. Yeah. And so we briefly mentioned like, when would you opt for berberine versus DHB? So maybe let's sort of break that down. As far as killing things off, gut balance, we'd look at berberine for sure. If we're looking for insulin sensitivity, metabolism, like I said, they're both going to be effective, but dihydro from the studies appears to be way more effective. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. What about the fact that DHB can affect better hydroxybutyrate? Maybe do you want to explain the benefit of, you know, increasing a ketone body? Yeah. So like Lucas said, beta-hydroxybutyrate, one of our ketone bodies. So berberine and dihydroberberine have been shown to help us get into a ketogenic state more rapidly. So this is like part of like the whole overall spectrum of like how berberine and dihydroberberine work. They activate those sort of those AMPK pathways. Okay. So we've got like, you know, Really broadly speaking, we've got like the MK and the mTOR pathways. mTOR is more for building, MK is more for breaking down. We might think, oh my God, that's bad. I don't want to break down my body. I want to build my body. There is a time and place for everything, right? Everything in nature, in the human body, exists within a balance, exists within a cycle. And in general, we tend to be skewed more to the mTOR thing with constant feeding, et cetera, et cetera. So by activating more of those MK pathways, you know, by you know, producing ketone bodies, by improving insulin sensitivity by, you know, keeping our, our sugars within a, a lower range, like a, a less variable range, we're actually improving like the health of the cells and longevity of the cells. We can activate a lot of these sirtuin pathways, certain cellular signals as well that can help us live a longer, healthier life, you know, extend telomeres and the like there. Yeah. What about the study in 2008? I know we flagged that looking at mm. how researchers compared DHB versus regular berberine. Yeah, maybe you want to explain that study to my listeners. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So it was a it was a mice study again, and they had like two groups. They had the berberine group and the dihydroberberine group, and the doses, like we said, were different. So dihydroberberine, the DHB group, they received 100 milligrams per kilogram per day. So based on the weight of the rat, I mean that's how we dose these things. So 100 milligrams per kilogram per day, whereas the berberine group got 560 milligrams per kilogram per day. So 5.6 times a higher dose with the berberine. What they found was that even though the dose was significantly higher with the regular berberine, the dihydroberberine mice had better improvements in adiposity, so less fat storage, better triglyceride levels, so it was less triglyceride buildup. Insulin sensitivity improved as well. So it was like a higher, like a 44% increase from the dihydroberberine group, and which was higher than the, the regular berberine group as well. So again, it's like... Less dose, like bigger bang for buck, I suppose, what we're looking at here. And um, the authors of the study, they postulated or they, they suspected that it's probably the bioavailability that's contributing to it. Now, again, that's just their perspective. It could be just bioavailability. It could be something we, we can't even measure yet. What we do know is it works better in terms of insulin sensitivity. Yeah, this is a really critical point when we're looking at various supplements and evaluating the efficacy of so many different flavonoids and alkaloids and things like that. A lot of it does come down to, I remember when I was working at Happy back in the day, I used to hang out with Adam. He was a researcher, data scientist. You've met him. He was always driving home. It's all about bioavailability. He just kept saying like, good job, Lucas. Like you found an ingredient, but is it going to get absorbed? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Like there's all those cells, like even um, 
you know, in my degree, we did like literature reviews for certain subjects. And I looked at curcumin for one of them. And you look at the cellular studies, you know, the in vitro and vivo studies, and it's like, wow, it does all these amazing things. But then you take turmeric and it's like, how can we not seeing those same effects? And it's like turmeric has curcumin in it. The curcumin is not very bioavailable. So it doesn't get to that cell to actually do it that, that well. Same deal with this. Like if we have berberine, which is not as bioavailable, we can look at all the beautiful things it does in the cell, but is it actually getting to the cell in that form? That's where we have to look into it. And that's yeah. And that's part of like the beauty of dihydro as well. We might be thinking, well, like we said, it's berberine has 17 metabolites. Dihydroberberine is one of them. We might say, well, if we're extracting just that one component, are we missing out on those other 16? You know, that entourage effect, you know, that synergy between them. We actually don't. The beauty is dihydroberberine passes through the intestines and then converts back into berberine there. So we get like a higher concentration of berberine, which we then can get all those metabolites as well from having the berberine in there. Yeah. Now that's a really, really good point to understand that process. What about the fact that DHB can increase adiponectin? Yeah. Adiponectin is more your wheelhouse to chat about, bro. Yeah. So adiponectin is actually a fat derived hormone that appears to play a crucial role in protecting against insulin resistance, diabetes, and also atherosclerosis. So what's interesting here is actually I've heard of adiponectin many times and I was like, all right, what else? increases adiponectin and interestingly we know that exercise has been shown to increase adiponectin and decrease leptin fiber can boost adiponectin levels omega-3s green tea extract glycine curcumin ginseng and also a mediterranean diet i mean all of those on that list are all conducive to better fat loss ultimately because we're increasing this adiponectin and then also just generally supporting the body in terms of overall health. So I found that really interesting to see like what else can increase adiponectin. It seems like yeah, sure. DHB can do that. Yeah, for sure. that's, that's, you know, it's like, it's so multifaceted. It's like, I suppose what the thing is, we know it works. And now it's like, how does it work? That's what we're looking at here. We're like, okay, it works this way. It works that way. It works. It's like, it's got all these different mechanisms there. It's like, it's just, yeah, it's really cool to sort of delve into what else we're missing out on as well. Yeah. Also another benefit of just regular berberine is the effect on autophagy so there was that study that we flagged uh, berberine as a potential autophagy modulator how does this sort of tie in maybe like i mean we know that a lot of these anti-cancer drugs can also work on this autophagy pathway how else is autophagy stimulated yeah well i suppose fasting is one of them yeah and improving ketone production as well and i suppose we should say like what even is autophagy obviously i know your listenership there's gonna be a lot who know but some may not so Again, if we break down those words, auto means self and phagy means to eat. You know, so you're eating yourself. It's like you're cleaning up these cells or the components of cells even that aren't working as effectively. You know, it's like when there's like times of fasting or, you know, like decreased availability, the body's like, okay, like we need to make everything work better. You know, we can't just rely on this constant abundance. So it's like we have less. So, okay, cool. I'm going to break down that component that's not working as well. Take the proteins from that, turn it into something better. Okay, that's... Like we said, so I said with so many different things, like especially longevity, also like the metabolic side of things is quite helpful too. So um, yeah, that's, that's that one. Yeah. In addition to the autophagy, obviously berberine has some pretty extensive research in cancer. Obviously this is not like medical advice, but some of the initial, you know, rat studies in cancer, we can see that berberine has been shown to affect cell cycle, cell apoptosis, cell autophagy, 
and the tumor micro environment. I mean, what have we seen, I guess, like in terms of reducing or improving cancer-related outcomes, like improving metabolic health is only going to assist that, right? Sure. I mean, it just makes you harder to kill with everything, really. It lowers your risk of what they call all-cause mortality, so dying from anything, having better metabolic health, I should say. Yeah, yeah. So then I guess if we were to like sort of summarize in total what can berberine or dihydroberberine do for someone, if we look at like somebody's interested in potentially, you know, integrating DHB into their regime, like what effects may they notice or what can they expect from that? Yeah, for sure. It's one of those beautiful compounds, right? I remember, you know, I was talking to Jordan, our other business partner, and you about this. And what I love about dihydroberberine is it doesn't really discriminate too much. It's like anyone from like the chronically ill all the way to like higher end athlete, like along that spectrum, a lot of people can benefit from it. That's what I love so much about it. And when you think about what it does, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Sean Wells, who you work with, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or not. No, if you need to edit that out, whatever. <laughs> but he says like this is his his number one longevity compound that everyone should be on. Now, granted, he you know found the the dihydroberberine ingredient, etc. But the reason for that is for the average person, like even that chronically ill person, it's going to help improve their metabolic health. I know we've harped on about this. That's the beauty of it, and that does so many things. And it's like you know, besides just like reducing our risk of diseases, you know, metabolic diseases, why else is it so important to improve metabolic health? Well, if we think about it, like we said before, we eat our sugar, it goes from our intestines into our bloodstream, pancreas push that insulin, get into our cells. The cells then have to turn that into energy. And if we don't get the sugar into the cells in the first place, or if we have unhealthy cells, we're not producing energy. That energy, like it funds everything within the body, essentially. So if you take something like berberine, improve your cellular health, improve your insulin sensitivity, you're getting more energy. And at its basis, like that is what makes everything better, having more ATP within the body. So yeah, metabolic disease, improved energy. And then just like on another level, it's like because of its effect on AMK and able to like helping us preferentially, you know, shuttle sugar into muscle cells versus fat cells and lower inflammation, it's going to improve body composition. I mean, that's, that's fantastic for everyone. And especially for people who have had chronic illnesses or even just the average person, but with chronic illnesses, if they can do something, because oftentimes I can't exercise as much, you know, like I know having been from that world myself, it's like I was so self-conscious for years about not being able to exercise and like not being able to do much. And like, I just didn't feel good, didn't look good. And then by, you know, over time, like taking compounds like this, being able to improve my body composition without even having to, you know, even while I couldn't exercise, it was just like a nice, you know, boost for my, uh, my ego, you know, a bit more yeah. egogenic, I suppose. also Uh, i'd like to add in obviously you said improving the body's ability to use glucose as energy and essentially making more atp producing more atp then in addition to that is like your your immune system gets as well like that's again a factor that's neglected so do you want to sort of explain that yeah and like we sort of touched on it briefly before like 2020 2021 you know, there was all this talk about this thing that was going around that was harming people. And then there was talk of, oh, it's, you know, it doesn't discriminate, but it did. It discriminated quite a lot. (laughs) You know, people who were metabolically healthy didn't fare as worse in terms of like how quickly they recovered from it and whether or not they died from it as well. So having a better metabolism, like we said, can help us get energy where we need to. That includes to the immune system. That includes keeping inflammation low when it needs to be and ramping it up when it needs to be. Because when you're unwell, you need a healthy inflammatory response. You know, to have chronically suppressed inflammation is 
just as terrible, like, you know, suppressed too low, I should say, is just as terrible as too high inflammation. So, yeah, having a better metabolism improves our immune function and just improves our ability to handle anything that comes our way. I mean, yeah. if we were to think about this, every, like if something did not discriminate, everyone would have had this by now. Everyone would have had it to the same degree as well, but not everyone did. You know, like I had it, it wasn't all that bad. My mom and her partner had it and mom's partner unfortunately had quite a bad outcome from it. You know, I think the difference is a lot of things, but one of them I would say is metabolic health is a key contributing factor there. Yeah. That's like on that. Yeah, that's what we've sort of looked at for the average or the chronically ill person. Then we can go on the athlete side of things. You want to delve into that, bro? Yeah, well, I guess as far as like integrating it for athletes and how best to utilize it and some of the effects that they can notice, obviously improved fat and carbohydrate metabolism. So reducing, particularly let's say athletes that are undergoing maybe like a bulking phase and they need some sort of support to put on muscle, but without storing too much of their food as fat, basically. So it's going to be helping with that carbohydrate utilization. So that's basically nutrient partitioning. So improving that, that's the GDA effect of DHB. That's the true glucose disposal agent property or effect of DHB. So decreasing fat mass, increasing energy. I mean, that's essential for all athletes. And then also better recovery and this is like a secondary effect via improved general hormonal health. Because, I mean, we've seen that in men that are insulin resistant, they're also that also compromises their testosterone production and even fertility as well. So it's going to have a downstream effect there. And um, women too as well. Like, you know, like we said before, like polycystic ovarian syndrome, a key contributing factor in many of the cases is that insulin resistance picture. So then I guess like my listeners are probably wondering now, like as far as dosages are concerned, and for those listening in, we will have this DHB linked in the podcast show notes. It'll be on my website as well. We've already got a discount code set up for it. It's Ergo DHB. Yeah, that's right. E-R-G-O-D-H-B. Yeah. So if you do want to grab a bottle or more than one bottle, use that discount code. And as far as dosages are concerned, yeah, this is the most critical point, I guess, for those listening in, how to use DHB, how best to utilize it. I know you said you can sort of, you can technically use it, uh, you know, any time of the day, technically. Yeah. Um, exactly. So like, let's look at dosages and when to use. Yeah. I suppose like, so the dose is, you know, between 100 and 200 milligrams and one to two times per day. So if we compare it to like regular berberine for the sort of insulin sensitizing effect, it's often like you take a 500 milligram capsule you take that with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Or, you know, first when you wake up, right before bed, and one time in the middle of the day. Um, this one, which we didn't actually mention this, has a high plasma life as well. So it stays in the bloodstream a lot longer than dihydroberberine. So you can get away with taking it just twice a day versus the three times a day with the, um, the regular berberine. So, yeah, 100 to 200 milligrams, one to two times per day. I suppose the best time would be, depending on your goals, of course, but usually right before like your highest carbohydrate meal about yeah. half an hour before. But again, if you forget half an hour before, just take it right before, no problems there. Take it on an empty stomach if you want in the morning, assuming you don't get any like, you know, GI or gut issues from that. Or Not to say that there's too many gut issues with dihydroberberine, but some people are just very sensitive to things on an empty stomach. I'm pretty fine with it, I think. What are you, like, you're pretty sensitive to some stuff. Like, Yeah, for me, um, like uh, particularly things like zinc. I mean, zinc, <laughs> you're asking for nausea if you take zinc. <laughs> so I used to take like, huge amounts of zinc and i'd just be like no nah. apart from when i like really 
messed up one day, but that's a different story. So you can take it, you know, like first thing in the morning, if you want, right before bed. Again, there is some element of like ownership and self-responsibility that comes with this. You have to know your body. You know, some people take it before bed, they might have too low blood sugar. You know, like again, I don't tend to have those issues, but other people, other people do. So yeah. the safest time, you know, before your meals, especially the carbohydrate rich meals as well. Yeah. I suppose if we're getting like really pedantic, it might be best to keep it away from workouts because we yeah. want to like more of that mTOR pathway after workout, not so much that AMPK, you know, that sort of more catabolic. Well, Post-workout, post how sensitive is the body already to yeah, glucose? Right. Yeah. But then again, it's like, it's not terrible to take it. We're just saying like, what is the best, the absolute best yeah. to take it? If, if you've forgotten every other time, you're like, you know what? If the only time I'm going to take it is post-workout, then take it post-workout. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's that and we can yeah i suppose look at even just like having it before a meal or having it like or even like before cheat meals i mean that's like the date night date night <laughs> is that the night where you just eat dates in your kitchen uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes just i eat 12 medjool medjool dates just so you can say hey sorry i'm on a date night tonight i can't come out <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely uh, that's definitely a situation which i've like yeah rotated various GDAs, DHB, other ones, Metformin, um, is literally like binge events, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not that we, you know, we condone that, of course, but if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And you may as well, like, you know, biohack your way to better blood sugar from that. Yeah, we, yeah. we have this sort of, this opportunity now, better living through science, where we That's- can do these things to, to mitigate some of the harmful effects. Yeah, we yeah. Don't need to, we're, we're not sort of just at the mercy of, potentially harmful sort of things that we do sometimes. Certainly like, yeah, don't do it all the time, of course, but if it's going to happen, find the best way to handle it. Yeah. I think just because we're naturopaths doesn't mean we're not human. That's I think like we still like to, (laughs) we have fun. We still have our fun. Yeah. So yeah, all the research papers, there will be a couple of YouTube videos that will be out by the time this podcast is released, but um, that discount code ergo DHB, be sure to use that. And then also, yeah, if you want to learn more about the product, the website will have all the research and the write-ups and I believe you're doing a comprehensive... Best one. one. Yeah. yeah. Best, best one. Like, Seth, you've got to make the best article on DHB on the internet. I suppose I do. All right, let's do it. Awesome. Great. Well, yeah, that pretty much wraps up the episode. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, man. Um, We have to do more of these. There's so much fun. I just like... We just jam it out. It just reminds me of the good old days. Um. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's pretty much it today, folks. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thanks, brother. Awesome. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a no filter media production. Say what you want. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.